Hey everyone, it's Bradley. Uh, Today is February 22nd, and you're probably expecting a podcast with Hugo and me. Um, Not getting it today. I have COVID, so we kind of punted on this week's uh, recording. Um, Instead, uh, Henry Greenidge from our team and I did an episode last week that I think is pretty interesting. Um, And so we're putting that up uh, in our place, and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks. All right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Henry Greenwich. Henry is an executive vice president here at Tusk Strategies, um, but a transportation expert more than anything else, and want to have him on talk about kind of the state of transportation today uh, in New York and in other places, too. So, Henry, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Bradley. I'm yeah. really excited to be here. Yeah, cool. Have you, has you have you been on podcast before? Yeah, I've done a couple podcasts before. Okay. So this is the this should uh, be fun though. This is our, this is our, our initial you, so. run together, yeah. right? Exactly. <laughs> so um, you've got. Let's just go through sort of your background because it's it's super impressive first, and then let's kind of hone in uh, on transportation. So just walk walk us through the Henry Granite story. Great, simple story. Brooklyn kid, grew up Brooklyn, New York. Uh, love New York City. Parents uh, come from Barbados and Savannah, Georgia, so I've got that immigrant uh, background uh, as well, and so can identify with a lot of New Yorkers. Got a chance to leave the city to go to school, went down south to an HBCU, Hampton Mm -hmm. University. And it's funny, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, Journalism looked like a good option for me, particularly because I got a scholarship to study journalism. Did that for four years, was in a wonderful program where I got a chance to work at ABC News over the summer, got a chance to field produce, work on uh, some investigative journalism uh, during the Bloomberg administration. Hopefully not investigating Mike Bloomberg. No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But did some great pieces there and thought I wanted to go into the news business. Um, I think... Uh, What happened for me is I had an assignment uh, that forced me to go through some old 9-11 footage, a lot of the B-roll that you never see, and sort of said, you know what, the news business may not be for me, just from that one assignment. Just because it was so horrific? or It was so horrific. um, And I think sometimes as a journalist, it's easy to kind of lose the story itself. And the story is just how we were devastated in New York. And I think... Uh, journalism, journalists have the responsibility to get a story out, and sometimes you have to take your emotions out of it. And I wasn't ready to do that. I was very young. But in any case, um, recognize that I still love news, still love media, uh, went on to radio, uh, was an account executive in radio, uh, did hip-hop, uh, what, hung around. What the, station were you at? I was at Power 105 when it first started, so I was in the hip-hop scene. Uh, so imagine me in, in my 20s. I'm going to clubs. I'm hanging out with you name it. Um, and now you're a suburban guy wearing a sweater vest. Yes. <laughs> but keep, keep going. Yeah. Uh, and so my plan was to go to law school and to be an entertainment lawyer. And, you know, that journalism thing uh, stayed with me and, you know, followed the news and just really got into the politics of the day and found myself during law school working in the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of my entryway. How how do you just woke up one day and you were in the White House? Like, how do you find yourself working in the Obama administration? No, it's funny. So uh, I did an uh, internship at Universal Music Group. So I'm working at the music label. I'm, you know, well on my way. 
And I just realized I had nothing in common with those folks uh, and was trying to figure out a way to use my law degree. I had this background in TV and radio and the logical choice for a lawyer uh, is the FCC. They regulate TV and radio. Right. And so I found myself at the FCC, which is an independent agency, not a cabinet level agency. Uh, but that was my force foray yeah, in the and politics. It really is a stomping ground. Like other people have been on this podcast for uh, Jamie Rubin, yeah. Josh Gottheimer. Like a lot of people have sort of kind of made their bones at the FCC. It's like yeah. a place that turns out really talented people. Yeah, it's a bunch of lawyers, which most people don't realize. But uh, was there and then found my way uh, as an advisor to the Secretary of Transportation, where I stayed for a few years. And Who was the secretary at that time? Well, I worked for two secretaries, uh, Secretary Ray LaHood, who was fabulous, and uh, Secretary uh, Fox, Anthony yeah. Fox. LaHood is interesting, right, because he was kind of the Republican pick, yeah. but, um, you know, from downstate Illinois, and yeah. he and Obama got along really yep. well. And it, yeah, I mean, you never hear. I always thought when I was deputy governor that Ray was a little bit of a pain in the ass, <laughs> Ma- mainly just because he hated Blagojevich and Blagojevich <laughs> wouldn't take his calls. And so then when I returned the call for Blagojevich, he was annoyed automatically. Um, but yeah, you only ever hear great things uh, about his tenure there. Really wonderful to work for. What I liked about him was he gave the opportunity for young politicos to sort of earn their way and to advise him. He, he listened. He listened to us. And I think you have to remember during that time, this was during the Recovery Act. We we're trying to figure out ways in which to put together programs to put America back to work. And he was open to almost anything. And a lot of our programs we ended up doing, and I think to some success. Yeah. And so Obama happens, then what do you go from there? So Obama happens. I'm loving being in the administration. It really was a beautiful time to be in Washington, D.C. Got an opportunity to to work at the White House Office of Management and Budget. My office was right across the street from the West Wing. And so had this great uh, D.C. experience and then decided to go home. I felt like I was in D.C. I'm working on these problems that, you know, 30,000 foot level, wanted to sort of try my hand at local politics. Um, Famous last words, yeah, keep going. Famous last words, honestly. Uh, So in 2014, moved back home, uh, landed at New York City Department of Transportation, uh, and really understood how things worked. What, what were you doing there? Polly was the commissioner at the time? Polly was the commissioner, and she was fantastic. Yeah. She essentially let me create my own portfolio. That's great. So I was working on mayoral initiatives, you know, figuring out ways to move people around the city. Uh, bus rapid transit was a mayoral initiative. Uh, focusing on communities like East New York and Brownsville, which I, I got really into, mm-hmm. which was phenomenal. Uh, and uh, the, the mayor's housing plan as well. DOT played a major part in that. Why, why is DOT important in a housing plan? So what people don't realize is uh, DOT controls the streets. So, of course, you've got all this infrastructure you're trying to save a, a, as affordable. Uh, but you need to coordinate with, uh, with agencies that focus on the streets like DOT. So how are you going to handle this new infrastructure if you're building homes? Making sure that um, the existing infrastructure is being paid attention to, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, all right, so you're working at DOT, yeah. but then, then you go even further into the transportation industry. Yeah. Uh, and that's the part that I still probably when people see your resume. I would imagine the two things that are really cool was working in the Obama administration and then working on autonomous cars, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and yeah. unfortunately, working at Touch Strategy is not nearly as cool, but, <laughs> but what, 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 what was the job that you did at Cruise? So, uh, let me tell you how I got to Cruise. Yeah. So, um, I first saw an AV at DOT. This is probably 2011. Google came to Washington, D.T., uh, Washington, um, 
DOT. Mm-hmm. They had their Google self-driving car. Yep. They came to see the secretary. It, it blew our minds. Uh, a couple of years later, I had the opportunity to go out to Google X and see the progress that they made. So I said, all right, I'm going to take this transportation thing one of two ways. I'm either going to work on climate stuff or I'm doing autonomous vehicles. Right. Uh, it just worked out. The timing was perfect. Cruise was looking to launch a driverless testing operation in New York. I was, le- I was looking to leave uh, the New York City mayor's office. I had sort of had enough of the local politics at that time. I, I would promise you that if it wasn't the de Blasio administration, you would have enjoyed it more. You know, I hear that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I worked with some great people there, but honest, I didn't have a wonderful experience. Um, I I don't think, and look, while this isn't meant to be a podcast about city politics, I I do think it's a pretty clear point that sort of culture really matters, right? Um, You know, at least the Bloomberg City Hall, Mike really understood that and really focused on culture. I think the Blasio saw it much more in the style of a traditional politician and and kind of managed like he was still a legislator. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the good news is it, it sounds like things are improving there now with, with Eric Adams at the helm. It, well, to me, it sounds a little bit of both. It sounds like it's a little bit of uh, the crazy because they've just started, um, yeah. but it seems like he has a different approach to leadership and management, which I think will benefit the city. So you're at Cruise. They want to start doing autonomous testing in New York. What happens? Crucial mistake. Politics. Yeah. They decide to work with only Governor Cuomo, and they don't do any outreach to the city. And so it's my— well, So wh- why? It, it, it was nothing more than sort of just ignorance. Think about it. If you are a California-based company and you've got the governor who loves cars and he's interested in this thing and, and helping you, of course you're going to work solely with the governor. And I think a lot of technology companies make this mistake. They don't do the stakeholder mapping. They don't understand what's actually happening on the ground and who matters. And as you know, New York, everybody matters. Yeah. I mean, shit, you know who learned that lesson more than anyone? Amazon, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They focused on Cuomo, a little bit on de Blasio, ignored all the local politicians who yep. defeated that. Yep. And for, in my opinion, the city suffered. I, I think we lost a lot when Amazon left. Agreed. Yeah. 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 So... Cuomo, that could he, could he, I assume there are big enough state facilities that you could have done testing at, but I guess that didn't give you the experience you wanted in terms of navigating city no. streets and things like that. No, we wanted to be in challenging environments and we wanted to have our own control. So we spent money on a facility in downtown New York uh, and we were ready to go. We were probably a day or two away from launching the operation and sort of. Uh, so what happened? Well, <laughs> you know, um, a, a couple things happened. Number one, uh, which plays out today, which every tech company is probably dealing with, it's how much data are you going to share with the city? Uh, the, the city initially had probably a 12 to 15 page data request from us. And there, there's two sides of this. There's one, the city should have the opportunity to collect data from anyone testing on city streets. There's yeah. no doubt about that. But there's also the issue of what's actually feasible. And a lot of the technology companies, they just don't have the capability to provide the level of data that the city is looking for. And Mm -hmm. in many cases, the city has no idea what they're asking for or what they will do with it. They're just asking for the data. And when you explain to them, hey, guys, here's what we can feasibly produce, they were just like, that's not good enough? So, no, I would say to the credit of the city of New York, uh, they listened. And it took some time, but I think we all got to a point where we were going to try to make it work. But I think from Cruz's standpoint, 
you know, they, they shifted uh, the direction of where they wanted to go. It went from a point of where they wanted to test in multiple markets and collect data and improve their technology that way to recognizing that they really wanted to launch in San Francisco. So why not p pour all of your resources into San Francisco? And do you think that's just because they thought that it was sort of closer to home and the politics were better for them? Like, I, what, would, I think, what would make you say, I prefer San Francisco? The, the Hills had more complications that they needed for testing? I think, it, it, I think it's more resources devoted to actually launching a service where you want to be instead of launching a testing operation to give you learning, right? So and ultimately, I think it was the right decision. I think the city of New York learned a few lessons as well. You know, who should be at the table when an autonomous vehicle comes to the city? I think the city of New York learned that it should be DOT, it should be TLC, should be EDC, should be NYPD, should be other uh, safety organizations as well. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think it was a good thing that happened. Lots of lessons learned for everyone. Um, there is some regret personally because I work so hard. It's so frustrating. Yeah, right? it, it is yeah. very frustrating. Um, but it's still a conversation that the city needs to have. Right. Yeah. Right. So, okay, so you've been in and around autonomous cars for o over a decade now. Um, this is one of those sectors that you hear wildly different predictions and reports from, right? Yeah. There are people who will tell you autonomous you know, cars that can navigate the lower Manhattan are coming in three weeks, and there are people who say level five autonomy is a decade away. Um, where does it stand in your mind? Yeah, well, I think you have to qualify the question first. There okay. are so many different use cases. Are we talking about AV shuttles? Are we talking about robo-taxis? So if we're talking about robo-taxis, I don't see that for quite a while. Why? I don't see the infrastructure, and I don't see any planning happening for the infrastructure. I don't see any public buy-in yet. I don't see the education happening. I think uh, the AV industry has tried to do that, but in the end, they're only talking to themselves. There are some great organizations out there that are, that say they're focused on education, but it, it really becomes uh, education for the AV community rather than the general public. So I think that needs to change. So why do they get, I mean, y you would think that there's enough, there's enough money at least to hire people who understand public facing campaigns and narratives and all of that. Well, why can't they get it right? Well, the money goes to the engineering. You know, I think they still haven't finished their technology, and that's the thing. You know, there are different stats that are out there. They say Some say that they're 90% there or 95%, yeah. but they're not done. They're still fine-tuning fine the tech, and so all of the financial resources needs to go to that, and there's less impetus, especially from those who make the decisions, into public education and things that will get you more pilots and more public exposure. And when it comes to regulating autonomous vehicles, I mean, to me it always feels especially complicated because because you've got the, the federal piece, kind of DOT and NHTSA and everyone, on the actual construction of a car itself, a vehicle, yeah. um, and then the local city or municipality, county, whatever it is, uh, on the actual driving rules. Um, you know, how would you advise the leaders of the AV sector to kind of navigate this dual duality at the same time? Look, it, to me, it's all local. <laughs> it's all local. Yes, you need a federal bill. Um, and we're getting closer. I think there are some agreements that have been made that get us closer. The trial lawyers have now sort of settled their issues with a federal bill, but we're still not there yet. And quite frankly, our system is broken and we have enough time, enough difficulty passing an infrastructure bill, let alone right. autonomous vehicles. Right. A 20th century right. infrastructure bill mainly. Yeah. Right. 
But I think the local governments, they're more interested in seeing how this can work. I think initially there was the fear of, you know, what will happen? Uh, will we get burned the way certain TLC, TNC companies burned us uh, by not sharing data, by not— And are you uh, referring specifically to Pittsburgh and Uber in this uh, case? That is who I'm referring to. Yeah. <laughs> so to tell the audience real quick, like, what happened in Pittsburgh and, you know, uh, why— I remember I had dinner, went to a dinner with Bill Peduto a couple years after that, and he didn't realize that I was no longer with Uber and just kept complaining to me about it. And I'm like, dude, I got nothing to do with this. But tell, tell them well, what happened. To be honest, I'm not sure I'm the, the best person to tell what happened there. What I, what I, what I am best at is probably giving you how uh, the, the urban technologists and the urban planners felt about Uber. And that is they came in and they uh, sort of played in their sandbox and they weren't very nice about it uh, and it exposed them in a way that they weren't looking to be exposed. Right. Now, just full transparency, um, Uber changed my life. I was commuting from D.C. to New York uh, to see family every single weekend when I lived in Washington, D.C. And before Uber, I would have to deal with catching a, a cab uh, in the middle of the night in Washington, D.C. Uh, suffice it to say, there were some nights I had to walk home either because someone would not stop for me or there just simply wasn't any service. As soon as Uber came around, I no longer had that problem. So personally, I'm a big fan of what Uber did in terms of access and equity. I could tell you all time, all kinds of stories of cabs not stopping for me, that kind of thing. Yeah, sure. um, but on the other hand, if you're an urban planner, uh, you, 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 you felt yourself exposed. Yeah. yeah? I mean, the, the, for the urban planners listening to this, as the person who did a lot of the exposing, um, I, I would say, and I think they've gotten better at this, um, you can't just say, no, this new technology, I don't like it, I haven't come around to it yet, so you That's can't right. have it. Because then all you're doing is making the company say, well, I've got to go over your head, or I've got to That's beat right. you up, or whatever it is. And I think, you know, to me at least, staying in the transportation realm, when we did Bird, um, not that every DOT commissioner in the country wanted, wanted electric scooters, but I think they at least understood I've got to work with these guys. I've got to deal with them. I've got to have a process. And it felt much more collaborative. Yeah, I agree. And so that's where we are now. I think uh, local governments, including city DOTs, are more, uh, they're, they're ready to have these conversations. I think they're, they, they want to have these conversations. I frankly think some of them think of these conversations as, as legacy setting for themselves. Uh, and so that's why if you're an AV company, you want to start locally. And I, I think you want to... Um, you, you want to sort of put the federal government to the uh, to the side for a bit. So if you were designing a city from scratch, we'll, we'll make you the urban planner in, in this case. <laughs> and, and what are the key transportation modes that you think are, are the most important, especially, you know, heading, looking into the future for the next couple of decades as opposed to what we did 50 years ago? Well, I think you have to look at it from a public transport lens and making sure that you have solutions where the greatest number of people can move around efficiently. Uh, in New York City, it's the subway and it's buses. Unfortunately, there hasn't been enough investment. So the first thing I'd want to do is in invest in that infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And for me, that would be autonomous. Uh, and I would ensure that there's access. Uh, and so in New York, as you know, we're still building out the Second Avenue subway line, right? I think by 20. 
2.22, it should be done, something like that. <laughs> well, you know, there are large uh, places in Brooklyn where there are just transportation deserts. There are no buses. There are no trains. Uh, so first is the, the public piece of it, uh, which, again, would be autonomous. Um, but I also think uh, I'm a big believer in emerging mobility. And so the concept of flying cars is someone who grew yeah. up in the 80s. I've been obsessed about. And I actually think they are in a better place than the AV companies. Why? Because their technology is either done or close to it. And I think that they're, they're, what is stopping them is the infrastructure and, again, the uh, public education. And so, What kind of infrastructure would a robust flying car system need? To me, that's the best part of it. You need EV infrastructure. And so I'm specifically talking about the EV tall category, yeah. so electric uh, and vertical uh, takeoff and landing, right? Mm -hmm. They use the same infrastructure as, say, a Tesla. And so where you can expand upon your EV infrastructure for electric cars, you get the added benefit of the EVTOL. And do you think flying cars, EVTOL, can work at scale, trans, kind of transporting tens of thousands of people, or is it just sort of a novelty for some rich people? That's a good question. Um, I think I like what the companies are, are saying. This is not supposed to be for the rich person. What they want to do is bring down the cost of rides tremendously, and they want to solve the congestion issue that we see in New York and right. L.A. And so everywhere, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I'm optimistic about that, and I think that uh, because you have local governments that are smarter in terms of how they deal with technology companies, I think they're going to hold them to that. I also think there are ways in which uh, there's already existing infrastructure that you that could be uh, added. Uh, EV talk could be added to it. The medallion system is one of them, you know? Right. So when do you think we'll see the first flying car in operation in the U.S.? Good question. I definitely think by 2023 we, we will see that. Right. So years ahead, actually, of autonomous vehicles really Absolutely. operating on, on city streets. Absolutely. These companies are active. Um, you know, I'm very active on a, a board for the Urban Movement Lab in L.A. There are a number of pilot projects uh, in the pipeline there. Uh, companies are, are, are ready. Uh, they have the financial capital. Many of them have gone public via SPAC, so they have the runway. Yep. Um, but I, I think what needs to happen next is I think the industry needs to come together and ask the government what they want to see, and then the government needs to figure out how to make it happen. So let, let's take it even a step crazier and further. Hyperloop. Is it a real thing? What, what is it? You know, I don't know if it's a real thing. <laughs> I want it to be. Right. I want it to be, but I've never been convinced. Yeah. Have you? I mean, if anyone has probably seen some technology up close, it's, it's probably you. Have you seen anything that felt convincing to you? I haven't. Um, and not something that makes sense from a cost perspective. We're still not there yet. Um, and that's why I mentioned flying cars. It's one of the things I'm excited about because I actually think we can get there. And do you feel like within cities, things like bikes um, have really captured more and more of the public? Or is it just that the bike enthusiasts are excellent at politics and so they make it look like they're everywhere? Great question. I think it's a, it's a mix of both. Um, growing up in Brooklyn, I had these neighbors who lived across the street. They rode their bike everywhere. Um, and you thought they were weirdos. I thought they, they were weirdos. <laughs> right. At that time, they were weirdos. I bet they still but are. You know what? Yeah. <laughs> that, that's what's cool now, right? Uh, right? And so I think it's a little bit of both. You've got more people riding, and I think the, the advocacy, you have to give it to them. You know? Yeah, they've been really, really good at it. Um, congestion pricing. What's your position on it? Do you yeah. think we'll ever, it'll actually Look, be implemented here? I, I do. I, I do think it will be implemented. I think it's necessary. Look, from... 
an academic perspective, it makes sense. You, it, people who use the roadway have to pay. But I got to tell you, Bradley, I'm from Brooklyn. I, I'm from a West Indian culture where everyone drives. Uh, and it is a tough pill to swallow, and people do not understand it. Uh, more, and I keep saying this, there's a recurring theme here, more public education. People don't understand why it's necessary uh, to charge. They don't understand the gridlock. They don't understand that we're facing population growth and that we have to do something to curb the use of cars. Um, and so that's where the transportation sector and local leaders need to do more to educate people. But I, act, I, I think it will happen. The politics have been there. Um, I think our previous mayor was very slow to get there, but the fact that he... Right eventually got there. Because he's also one of those guys that drives everywhere, yes. right? And yeah. so that's, that's his mentality. What's the number one thing that you think that uh, transportation kind of technologists don't understand about government and regulation? And what's the number one thing that government and regulators don't understand about technology? Sure. On the technology, I'm sorry, uh, the, the regulators, the regulators don't understand that um, technology companies have no idea what they do. They don't under <laughs> So... There needs to be a meeting of the minds, Bradley. You know, when I was at Cruise, what I realized, the, the, the best value that I offered is that I spoke both languages. Yeah. I understood what the uh, engineers at Cruise, uh, what their concerns were and some of the challenges they had and what they were trying to learn. On the other end, I understood what the city, you know, the language that they spoke. And again, I'm talking to two different sets of engineers who don't speak anywhere near the same language. Um, I've, so I think they, they need to meet each other in the, in the middle. I think there's a responsibility for both to talk to each other about what one another is trying to do um, without hiding the ball. Um, but, you know, that is sort of like uh, trying to get uh, people who are never agree to agree. Um, it's really the government affairs people in quite frankly, the lobbyists, the people who play the middle that have the biggest role in this, and it's their job to get those folks on the same page. Are you saying that the evil lobbyists may actually be necessary to solve a societal problem? Look, I, yeah, yeah. I, I don't see lobbyists as evil. I see them as an integral part of our system. Uh, and, you know, with every uh, good thing that they do, there are also negative things, but that's with everything. Right. Um, do you think that it, the car industry sort of gets modern day politics. I mean, on one hand, you could look at the bailouts, you know, from 2008 and say, yeah, they get it really well. And sometimes you look at it and it feels like they're still living in the 1950s. No, I think they're living in the 1950s, having worked with one. Yeah. Um, they're, they're still in the 1950s. But look, I think they're catching up. I think um, Tesla has done wonderful things, right? I don't think they are going to be able to maintain uh their leadership in the EV space. I think uh, the the, uh, the OEMs are going to catch up. They understand what they have to do. It's just taking them longer to get there. Um, but I think that's what you'll see. What, what do you make of Tesla's market cap and its valuation and all that? It's absurd. Yeah. How do you, I mean, is, give me the best I argument don't in favor it. of it. I don't, well, in favor of it is, you know, uh, next generation technology. The fact that you can do over the air updates, the fact that maintenance costs are low, the fact that, you know, uh, they've, they've simplified uh, everything, including uh, the, the, the user experience, right? Um, but it just makes no sense to me. Uh, how come their their value is so high? I, I don't get it. Uh, and there are notable people who are out there shorting 
Tesla. But they lose. They lose, but for how long will they lose? I don't know, but I've been watching people shorting Tesla and not winning now because it does seem, uh, when Lyle and I were walking to school the other day, I don't know how Tesla's valuation came up, but I said, like, I said, there's such a thing as shorting. And he said, well, why wouldn't people short it? I said, people try, but, you know, Elon Musk is just this cult of personality that kind of defies the gravity and the law of economics and the law of physics and, and everything else. This is true. So you, as a city guy, a Brooklyn kid, um, not too long ago moved to the suburbs in Westchester. <laughs> I did. <laughs> What's it like? And from a transportation standpoint, how has your life changed? So look, I love it. I love clean air, okay? Uh, one of the things that I, I never liked about being in New York City is the smells, right? Uh, there are so many different smells. Mainly, you know, we don't have alley, alleyways for our trash, you right. know? And so th- those things are acquired tastes. I love the fact that I can offer my children uh, more more park space with, with less people and they can play around and not worry. Um, so I love that. I love the fact that I'm also close to the city. We didn't go that far. We're in New Rochelle, so we're literally five minutes from the Bronx. So we got away, but we're not that far. Do you drive everywhere or do you take like a Metro North train? You know, as a mobility person who believes in public transit, <laughs> it pains me to say this. Yeah. I drive everywhere. And I'll tell you why. You know. My wife and I are the sort of classic modern family. We both work. We both sit on boards. Uh, My wife and I have two sons. They're two and one. I also have a child from a previous relationship. She's nine years old. So she's being shuttled back and forth. We're both taking care of our parents. It is a lot easier for us to jump in the car and go where we need to go and and deal with traffic than uh, the public transit system that's unreliable and unpredictable. Yeah, so what would it take for that value proposition to change? How much better would public transit have to get for it to be make just more sense for you? So number one has to be the safety. Um, you know, when my wife and I got together, it, it was sort of a joke, but I said, you're no longer allowed on the subway. And I, I would pay for her to, to be in cabs. Uh, and it quickly morphed into our reality because um, I did not, I didn't feel safe having her on the subway traveling at night. And this was even, like, obviously, everyone knows the subways have seen much more dangerous for the last, call it, six to 12 months. But this was was years ago. Yeah, years ago. This was years ago. Um, And I think that the subway and the state of the subway is really indicative of our homelessness crisis uh, and the fact that we haven't done a good job of uh, tackling that issue. We put Band-Aid on after Band-Aid. And, and, you know, these things have an effect. Uh, It has an effect on our health. It has an effect on everything. And so we didn't solve one issue, and it morphed over into a, a transportation issue. So your daughter is nine. She lives at least part of the time in Brooklyn. Yep. Um... At what age would you be comfortable with her taking the subway by herself? You know, I was thinking about that this morning because I want to say when I was in fourth, third or fourth grade, I was taking the subway and the bus by myself. And this was during the 1980s, crack epidemic. You know, there were gangs. uh, Crime was high. Uh, My parents still felt that I was at least safe enough to be put on public transportation. I don't feel that way anymore. I, I think times have changed, uh, and I have concern for my daughter, and so she's she's she will be a teenager before that happens. Yeah, you've definitely got a few years, but you're right. Even last night, Abby was at her boyfriend's, and she was going to come home 
for dinner, and it was like six. And I was like, yeah, you can take the subway. It's going to be packed rush hour. And then she ended up staying there for dinner. And an hour and a half later, I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll send an Uber for you. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't a huge deference. Yeah. And Lyle, my son, who's 13, um, as le- listeners of this podcast know, he and I read the post together every morning. And as a result, I think he definitely does not want to take the subway <laughs> by himself because all he reads every day is something terrible happening. Yeah. And he's like, why would I want to do that? And, you know, I'm trying to kind of push him a little bit, nudge him a little bit. But, uh, but I get that I, you know, I may be the one scaring him into all this. Um, so you're launching a new transportation practice uh, within Tush Strategies. Absolutely. Uh, t- tell me what you're thinking about and how it's going to work. Look, I think the the thinking behind this is looking at what's happening in the country. We've just uh, passed this infrastructure bill, uh, waiting for funds to be appropriated. That uh, means there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for cities, states, and, of course, technology companies to take advantage of the new discretionary funding. But what they really need is the expertise and people who understand how to navigate all of these different stakeholders to actually get projects done. You know, it's great that we finally have this money that we've been asking for at the local level. But if you ask me whether there are the right amount of people who can help navigate that those federal funds and, and understand how to work with local governments to get these projects done, I would say no. And so I think that's where we can come in. We can use our experience um, and really uh, get the job done in, in sort of half the time. Yeah. And ultimately, as a result, make our transportation system better. That's right. There we go. Henry Greenwich, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Bradley.